Hello, my name is Shireen Jordan and welcome to Tea and Tonic. This podcast is about giving my guests from all different creative industries the chance to tell us about how they got to where they are today, while we both sip a tea or perhaps something a bit stronger with a tonic. It's a chance for those affected by the impact of lockdown, the opportunity to chat, because talking is, as the saying goes, just the tonic. I hope you enjoy it with a beverage in hand. It's Saturday, August the 7th, 2020, and my guest today is actress, writer, producer, and co-owner of Fizz and Ginger Film Production Company, Tori Butler-Hart. Tori, originally from Oxfordshire, studied at the Central School of Speech and Drama, graduating in 2006. Since then, she started up her own film production company with her husband, Matt, and together they've been creating work for themselves with films including Missing Her Teens, narrated by Sir Ian McKellen, Two Down, The Isle, and most recently, Infinitum, Subject Unknown, starring, yes, Sir Ian McKellen. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Tori Butler-Hart. Hello! Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am very well, thank you, darling. I have um, I, I've got my my tea in one hand, lovely, <laughs> and in the other because I was sort of thinking by midday it's definitely okay. <gasps> in my other hand, I have my uh, tequila and tonic. You are everything I want to be, but you deserve it because you've already done a yoga class today, haven't you? I, 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 well, yes, I've just finished teaching <laughs> a ten till eleven a.m. yoga yoga class, so. Um, yeah, so I feel, why not? It's sunny. It's a lovely weekend. Why not? I get, treat myself to a, a tequila, tequila. Well, I'm not worthy. I've, I've got a bit of a cheat. I've got a kombucha with green tea in it today. Nice. Yeah. Love. Give me a bit of a pep. Very yogi. I, I respect that. <laughs> Thank you. My inner calm is there. Excellent. Um, so Tori, you have been super busy during lockdown, which we'll get onto in a moment with your movie in post-production. Going back a few decades, where did the, <laughs> where did the, I'm, sorry, <laughs> but where did, where did the acting bug come from? Is it, you know, in your family? Was it nurtured at school? Um, it, it sort of is in my family. Mum will never forgive me for saying this, but, um, my mother, Wendy, um, when, uh, she actually auditioned for Rada, rather, um, uh, disastrously. Um, but, um, she, so she sort of always had the, the bug. Um, and then she ended up actually going to Canada, um, and she was part of the Ottawa Little Theatre, um, over there. Um, she'd sort of, her, my grandfather was in the Navy, in the Canadian Navy, and so she kind of spent some of her childhood over there. Um, and then when she, when she was in her, um, kind of early 20s, she then sort of went, went back, and I think spent maybe five, six years out there um, at the Ottawa Little Theatre. So um, so it was always very much encouraged as a child, I would say. I'm an only child, and so um, there was lots of extra activities. Um, there was ballet, which was a kind of a big part of my life. Um, for most of my growing up, until I was 18, really, I was still very much thinking about maybe I will be a ballet dancer um and so um throughout my education I was always kind of going to ballet classes and there were time you know sort of a couple of times it sort of cropped up that oh am I going to go to the Royal Ballet or or you know what am I going to do um and and then I actually ended up um 
going to um, up to Birmingham because I lived in Oxfordshire. Um, Birmingham Royal Ballet ran a kind of vocational scheme where you would go up and you'd um, uh, spend like an entire weekend and you'd sort of really kind of hone your your um, your craft, as it were, um, and and develop your strength um, as a dancer. But that was sort of the I guess the clinching point for me because um because I, I guess I was a little old by that time I was kind of 17 so um if I if I had wanted really wanted it um then I would have had to have made my decision up by then really um and it just wasn't quite me as wonderful as ballet is and I love it and I miss it deeply um I just wasn't passionate enough I didn't like eat live breathe it um and acting was always that sort of second half of me the other half that um that I really wanted to pursue more um and so when I left uh, school I had a gap year and um I sort of took some time out and worked in various strange jobs um and earned money to go traveling and then in, in meanwhile I was auditioning for drama schools and so um I ended up going to central um it was uh, it was a yeah a sort of crazy amazing extraordinary bizarre experience <laughs> Was it was it hard? Because I've heard from various other guests, you've got to graft at drama school. It is hard. It is hard. It's difficult because all of your peers are kind of going off to university, and they're you know, especially freshers' year, I think is what it's called. Um, you 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 have this great time where you go out and you just drink a lot, um, which we did do. Oh yes. There was there were <laughs> there was still a lot of drinking and going out, but we also had to be up at like eight o'clock in the morning in our blacks, ready to do our movement exercises, you know. So it was yeah, it was very challenging, very demanding. Um, and and I think what was what's really interesting about drama school is that you also have people from kind of quite a wide um, age bracket. Uh, so you know people from 18 who have just the babies just left school um and then you you know all the way up to kind of people actually sort of in their in their when what I thought was just really old was in you know like their late 20s mm. or things not really old at all um but you, you've got you know a, t- a good 10-15 years sort of span of mm. people kind of all shoved together from all walks of life from all areas of the country of the world we had you know Americans students and so it's it's an amazing sort of crazy pot that everyone gets thrown into um and it's a very very sort of yeah strict um educational program that you're you're put through um and they really do look at you as the individual um and they do I'm not so much, I'm not so sure anymore whether this is the case, but there was very much a kind of unpicking of a lot of your habits um, mm. because at the end of the day, they're trying to create uh, someone who is sort of not a blank canvas, but, um, you know, something that um, you can, your adaptability is is honed, is is um, is kind of encouraged and, um, and crafted. So... Um, yeah, it's um, it's challenging for sure. And especially when you're very young, I think 
with people with a little bit more life experience who had a much greater idea of an understanding of who they are as people probably fared a little bit better um for me being quite young and i think even as a sort of 19 18 19 year old i was quite a young 18 19 year old um and i hadn't had that much life experience um and so i didn't really know who i was i didn't know who my what my casting was and so to sort of be picked apart like that before you're really sure of who you are um can be very difficult can be very challenging for sure do you think that tough love attitude if you like prepared you for then what was to come next afterwards because I would imagine then when you're out on your own doing auditions perhaps trying to find an agent it can be quite up and down oh my god I mean yeah like it's um that is the whole part and parcel of being an actor um is you know can you can you survive the rejections because they are constant (laughs) they come one after another like a relentless wave um and um it's uh, did it prepare me did drama schools prepare, prepare me for that no to be honest if I'm really honest no um I know they sort of would probably like to think that um they are preparing students for that kind of rejection but um it, you can't really unless you're living it I think it's yeah. it's sort of nigh on impossible because there's such a thing as sort of naive belief which actually you don't want to destroy because otherwise no one would do it um you know so you have to believe coming out of drama school that you are going to be the lucky one that lands game of thrones the year after you leave um you know you've you've got to believe that you're the one that's going to be holding a BAFTA in five years time um because because without that, um, you just can't, you can't survive it. You have, you know, they, you have to believe in yourself, um, which sounds very yogic. Um, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, I think that's sort of what I had to learn um, and what I had to teach myself, um, that no one is going to believe for you. So you have to have that innate confidence in yourself and in your own ability. I think that is brilliant, actually. Who better to know yourself than yourself and have right. that self-esteem and self-belief? Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, that you know, I think that's where the sort of true grit um, and determination sort of comes from. Um, you, you know, no one is going to have your back or work as hard for you as you are, um, uh, especially in this industry. Um, you know, it's it's very difficult. It's very cutthroat, um, which is why I decided to start making my own work, basically, because um, I sort of quickly realized that uh, just waiting around, sitting and waiting for the phone to ring just wasn't going to make it work for me. Um, that's not to say it doesn't for others. And were you doing lots of auditions, Tori, for theatre, telly, musical theatre, because you can dance as well? Were you just going for everything or were you fairly specific in what you wanted to do? No, I mean, I'm a pretty terrible singer, so musical theatre definitely wasn't (laughs) never my uh, forte, Um, although I love it. And um, I, uh, to begin with, I actually left drama school without an agent. So after my showcase, I had um, some meetings with some really amazing 
top agents. Um, and I think I like totally blew them because I think I just had such little confidence in myself. And I was a bit like, please take me, please. Um, I was just a bit of a mess. Um, so I think, uh, you know, that kind of, <laughs> that probably put uh, Asia's off being a bit like, oh gosh, she seems like she's going to be quite high maintenance. Um, uh, and so... So I sort of, and I was, but then actually, then I did get an agent um, sort of uh, maybe a year after leaving drama school and that came through, um, or maybe less, that came through a friend who had signed with with the agent at BWH. Um, and then uh, he took me, Andrew took me on, which was, which was lovely. And he um, did some amazing stuff for me and got me seen for TV stuff like doctors. I did a few a couple of doctors which um were, was great experience learning of you know um how the, that whole side of the works um because i think our drama school training for tv was about two weeks oh. <laughs> like a broomstick and maybe a camcorder um and that was about it um so you know it, i mean it, we really were quite ill prepared for any kind of screen um acting which has completely changed now i mean bear in mind we're sort of talking quite a few years ago um and i was auditioning for for theater and stuff like that but um i my actually my dad <laughs> saw all of my friends and I sort of you know auditioning stuff like that and and he kind of he came up with the idea of sort of setting up um this little sort of outdoor theatre company like a mini touring theatre company um where we would go and perform plays in open air because he um had seen loads of Shakespeare's and he was sort of a bit sick to death with open air Shakespeare um but is a massive fanatic of um sort of the 18th century and restoration and um and there are so many plays such a wealth of um, material within that period um and so he uh he said you know why don't we why don't we sort of try and set something up so that's that's how um mr hart's theatrical company started um and um a group of us got together and um we uh would perform them sort of open air and we had all the costumes and the wigs and you know everything else um and it was great because actually it kind of kept us working mm -hmm. and it kept you know the the brain going and the, the that acting muscle flexing um and it was sort of there that um, uh, we we used to go to this theatre called the White Bear in Kennington, um, and uh, Ian McKellen, who um, had worked with my my husband, had worked with him rather um, uh, on the Da Vinci Code, mm -hmm. um, and Matt was he had auditioned for the play. Um, that we were doing um, and he actually didn't he actually didn't get the part to begin with um, <laughs> we gave the part to another actor because um, one of the actresses in our cast quite fancied him <laughs> and so as professional as we were at the time um, <laughs> the other actor was offered the part he then subsequently um, was offered a much more exciting uh, highbrow role 
um, I can't remember, I think it might have been at the National Theatre or something like that, um, to which you know, we were obviously like, well, we've got to go and do that rather than you know, our outdoor play in Oxfordshire. Um, so uh, he off he went. Um, and so I had to call my Matt, um, my husband, back and, and say, um, I know we said that uh, actually it wasn't going to go your way, but um, <laughs> might you consider still taking on the role? Um, and very kindly, uh, thank goodness for me, he said yes. Um, and so from yeah, so from there um, we uh, we sort of the play then went to the White Bear and um, Ian McKellen came to came to watch it <gasps> at the White Bear and uh, and. Actually, it was really funny because he, I th- obviously like Lord of the Rings had come out. He was, you know, he was m- sort of massive. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, it was like Gandalf sort of mania. It's quite a sports bar in the White Bear in Kennington, or it used to be. Um, and they always had the football playing while the play was going on at the back. So you'd know, you know, if the home team had scored because <laughs> there'd be an enormous cheer right in the middle of, you know, probably quite a sort of quiet romantic moment or something uh so Ian sort of was at the bar and you know you'd hear them all going hang on a minute it's Gandalf <laughs> um uh, but he suggested to us that we were doing Miss In Her Teens at the time as a play which is by David Garrick and he sort of said well, you know why don't you film this because just as a sort of educational thing no one really knows about David Garrick, the writer. Maybe everyone's heard of him about the actor, but um, not so much his writing, um, which perhaps is, you know, um, uh, maybe a good thing because it's, it's an all right play. It's a decent play. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it was going to sort of change the world or anything. So that's why we why we basically filmed Miss Inner Teens because Ian suggested it and we thought, actually, yeah, why not? That's We've got the costume. Amazing. So there were a lot of stars aligning at this point, so that's where you met Matt and how love blossoms. Yes. <laughs> and so from there on in, after missing her teens, did you think there's legs in this? We could do some more with this, maybe some original work and create our own jobs, work and see where it takes us. Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, so originally when we filmed uh, Missing the Teens, it was like 2009 and it was um, it was 60 minutes because the play was only that long. We sent it around to a few people, um, but we were still doing the plays at that time. And then um, Matt came up with the idea of making a short film, which was a zombie comedy called The Gad Zombies, um, which was it said in the 18th century we had all the costumes um but we were like you know let's let's do something fun with this um so then we we did the the short film and we invited a whole load of people we had a screening at um the soho screening rooms and we invited a whole load of people from the industry not knowing at all what we were doing at this point or like what was the the way to go about this so we invited e1 and ingenious and you know distributors and finances and uh agents and casting directors (laughs) and um and they all came and watched this short film of us and they said right great great promo so when's the feature ready have you got a screenplay and we were like oh yes 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 we're working on that at the moment yes yes the screenplay Mm." um so then we sort of scuffled away and quickly (laughs) sort of 
plotted out our our feature film Mm -hmm. um and that basically kind of was what we concentrated on for about four years so we sort of carried on doing the plays um but financially it just wasn't viable to to continue with them um and we then um uh, sort of kept plugging and pushing a curse of the buxom strumpet and i think then um there was a a sales company in canada who had seen miss in her teens and said is there any way that you can film an extra like 10 minutes so we can then sell it as a feature because it was only it needed to be over 72 minutes long or something Mm -hmm. so um so like a full two years i think after we'd finished filming it we then like had to get the cast back write an extra 10 minutes of david garrick's play so we sort of bookended it beginning and end and we put a wedding at the end kind of thing and then got everyone back to film it over the summer which was i think 2013 or something so then that was being sold in canada by e1 and in uh, north america and then we were, in 2013, we were selected to be um, Screen International Stars of Tomorrow, um, which is like a sort of article that they run every year. And they kind of showcase actors, writers, producers, people that are working in the industry and they see as sort of the future sort of thing. Up and coming. Um, up and coming. Up and coming, exactly. So we were featured in that. And to be honest, like that did really, really help us. And it really opened like a lot of doors. Um, suddenly people were sort of like, oh, okay, this is interesting. What is this Curse of the Buxom Strumpet thing? Um, then we managed to get uh, Imelda Staunton and um, Gillian Anderson attached. Um, Ian had been in Igad Zombies, the short film, very briefly at the end of it, um, uh, which is obviously why people came to see it as well. Um, <laughs> not just because of our talent, but <laughs> clearly Ian McKellen in a zombie film. Okay, sure. You know, and then from there, we sort of started to build up the um, budget. And at the time, it was about three million that we were trying to raise, Ooh. which is a lot of money. It was our first feature film other than Miss in Her Teens, which so it's our first kind of original mm-hmm. written. Um, and because Matt was a first time director, um, we just re- for a feature film, we really kind of struggled to, to, to get that final 40 percent. It was really despite the fact of having all of that cast attached. Um, and so we kind of thought, okay, well, actually what we need to do is set our sights much lower, write something that is much more containable, that we can make for very little money, that can be our calling card Mm -hmm. as our feature film. This is what we can do. You know, please give us some money to to make to make uh, something else bigger um and so that is how um two down came about really i think also uh, it was the timing of the curse of the bucks and strumpet as well so um and this is what we've really learned i think over the years is that um timing for any one project is really really key um and so you know, you can have your passion project that you kind of, you know, trot around Soho and, you know, um, or not so much anymore, but, you know, and you can, um, you can keep banging on doors, but if it's not the right time for it, it's, it's not the right time. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's never going to be the right time, but you have to have more cards in your pack. You never know what someone's, what, what the industry are sort of 
waiting for. Um, and so having lots of options is really, really key. Um, and we were called into Lionsgate for a meeting in Lionsgate. And we were like, Lionsgate, God. they want the curse of the Buxom Strumpet. This is big time. We've made it. Um, so we, we sort of retrotted in and uh, sat down. And there was an enormous billboard behind me um, of Jennifer Lawrence because they were doing the Hunger Games. And then they said, so, mm, Curse of the Buxom's Trumpet, yeah. Period film, period costume, zombies, yeah. Um, so we're doing Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Um, and we're spending 10 million on the press and advertising alone. Oh, right, yes. So that's, yes. So Curse of the Buxom's Trumpet with our sort of measly three mil uh, budget. <laughs> was not going to sort of stand up against it um and so yeah so we thought right okay we'll put that to one side and it's, we focused on on two down and that was um we made for like forty five thousand, i think wow. something like that um really 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 tiny budget um and very small cast we basically wanted to set ourselves the challenge of writing um like a play a film that was set in one room with like three characters. Um, and unfortunately we, we didn't quite manage that because our writing isn't good enough. Um, but <laughs> it was predominantly set within a flat um, and uh, a young woman moves into this flat uh, and then a hitman, an Aspergic hitman, um, sort of takes her hostage in her own home because it used to be his safe house. Um, and she sort of gets embroiled into this this sort of, he, there's been a sort of a hit that's gone wrong and he's injured. The guy who's delivering her Chinese takeaway sort of turns up and he gets bundled into it as well. So there are your three characters um, in, in the flat, but it, it kind of, uses flashbacks to go back and and they work out what went wrong with the hit and and then it all sort of culminates at the end <laughs> and toy let's not forget you star in this film as well don't you yes yes i do yeah yeah so there's so much going on at this time and you're still you know relatively new to the industry and young were you always certain and adamant that things would come good especially after being rejected by Lionsgate? Or did it dampen your spirits for a time? And did you leave feeling really deflated? Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, you know, we sort of spent four years um, trying to, to push that film. Um, and, you know, and there's, like acting, very similar to acting, there's, you know, there's those moments where you get the call and it's like, you've got the job, yay. You know, you get the call, Gillian Anderson wants to be attached, yay. You know, and then and then you get a, a meeting with the Lionsgate, yay. And then they're like, no. <laughs> like, And suddenly all of that, all of those building blocks that you've been working towards and stacking up and it's starting to slot into place. And, you know, anyone that you talk to about film financing um, will always say this, that, you know, it, it's, there's any, at any given time, it can just all implode in. And it's like that being an actor as well. 
you know, um, you can get job and then that job leads to another job. And then, you know, and especially this year, you know, so I've spoken to so many actors um, and you, when you feel like your, your career is just starting to make that shift up a gear that, you know, you're just starting to kind of book those jobs that you really wanted to do or be seen by that casting director that you really wanted to be seen by you. And then, you know, and then this year's happened and everything's gone. Pause. Mm. Hold. <laughs> In terms of financing for a film, £45,000, that's nothing, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very small amount of money. Um, and we raised it by um, uh, running a crowdfunding campaign. That was some of it. Um, so getting sort of people behind the project and excited about the project. And then by um, asking individuals wealth wealthy individuals who um we uh knew whether um they might like to invest in it um and you know and also you know not particularly wealthy investors but just someone who you know was like 500 quid yeah all right i'll you know it's sort of it can be as little as that because actually you know once you've got 10 people who are prepared to you know put in a grand then you know that gets you kind of quite a bit of the way there and we kept it very very small so all of the locations were set around our flat so we could use our flat as the unit base once we had located to the the flat that we rented as the location that was then our sort of unit base as well as our location so there was you know it wasn't ideal by any stretch of the imagination and the crew was very small everyone worked really really hard um and was doing numerous jobs Mm. um but that's basically how you make indeed very low budget films Stephen Fry contributed didn't he yes he did yes he did very very kindly um he he did yeah um and uh Stephen's been been, as like Ian has been really lovely and very supportive um of us over the years um and he chatted to us for our book that we that we um wrote last year he um and Derek Jacobi. There are some wonderful, wonderful uh, people out there who um, have been very successful in their careers in the creative industry and who very kindly, as a friend of ours says on his podcast, they send the elevator back down, which is a really nice phrase. And I think it's a really, really lovely thing to remember as you kind of, you know, rise up and there's always people who need your help that um, would really benefit from just some advice or some, you know, if you've got the spare. I spare love time. that saying. I think that's yeah, lovely. Lovely, yeah. So, yeah, that's the Filmmakers um, podcast by Giles Alderson. Yeah, so he, that's one of his. I've stolen it. <laughs> Sorry, Giles. <laughs> it sounds to me like you've got some really big names backing both of you. My naivety would assume that you going to someone like Lionsgate and saying, you know, we've got all these names that want to be involved in our movie. I would have assumed that they would have or anybody would have just jumped on it and gone, yep, tick, that will sell. But obviously not. And it's a lot harder than just having those names attached to a script. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really, really funny one because... Basically, as a director, film finance people will always look at the director and look at their track record. If you are, have won a BAFTA or an Oscar for your short film, then, you know, yes, people will be like, you're ready for your feature. I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to put the money up. Um, if you're sort of 
less um, known and um, have done some short films, won some, you know, lots of awards. Um, but you still need your calling card. And I think a lot of first time directors kind of get a bit stuck here because they've got their passion project and they want to make this big film. And yes, one day they will make it. One day you will. If you keep at it, you will. Um, but maybe that's not the one for right now. Um, and kind of setting your sights a little bit lower and being a bit more realistic and, and actually creating something that is um, clever uh, about how you finance it, how you put it together. Um, but something that will stand out and show your ability because that's basically what we found was that, you know, three million, five million is a lot of money half a million is a lot of money you know so um if you can really try and make something that is contained and clever and on you know very very low low budget and on that level you don't have to have big names if you have a connection to someone who is fairly well established as an actor um then it can certainly help my goodness yeah absolutely it'll help get it seen mm -hmm. so you know and write a cameo role for them so don't approach them to be like will you be the lead in my you know three hour epic that I'm not going to pay you for no of course they're not but will they come and do like half a day where they're in one scene mm -hmm. yeah they probably will um actors at the end of the day want to work and they want to do stuff that's interesting and exciting and a lot of established actors want to help out younger people um and that's certainly what we found that's um, so refreshing to hear i love that uh so you know when i go and put pen to paper tori i'm yes. gonna be bugging lots of big names and of course because connor's hill has been involved with a lot of your movies are known for Game of Thrones. Yeah. Did you use that kind of approach with him as well then? Yeah, exactly. That's it. So um, Matt was in a play called Quarter Main's Terms with um, Connor uh, and Rowan Atkinson and they became friends. Uh, he's a, just a wonderful, wonderful man, Conniff. So we did exactly that for Two Down. We sort of wrote this kind of much smaller cameo role um, and we asked Conniff if he would play it. And it required one day's filming. And he said, actually, and he's, you know, he still says when working with us, he said, like, you know, it was great because I was in, I did it, I was out. Like, there was no hanging about, there was no, you know, nonsense. Um, it was just very slick and quick. And... I think a lot of actors kind of respect that when you respect their time, then they sort of appreciate that. And so um, after that, Conleth, then when we wrote The Isle, we went back to him. He said, you know, this is obviously um, a larger role uh, and will require you to be with us stuck on an island for uh, <laughs> three weeks or whatever it was. Um, but because he loved his experience before on two down he he said yes absolutely um so yeah so that's wow so tori the aisle that you've just mentioned came next and yes was that quite an organic process of that coming off the back of two down because like you say you did have to go to a remote island to film was it becoming easier at this point or was it mm. still no push 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 so that actually came about um, because Two Down was um, part of the BFI do these sort of um, London screenings. I think it's called London Screening Week or something like that. They're sort of showcasing UK feature films that have come out. 
And so, um, and there's a whole load of people from the industry that are invited. Um, and so we, uh, I say we, my husband, Matt, who is always the one that does all the emails. Um, he, he emailed a whole load of people and some, someone from Great Point Media came. Um, and they are a finance company, Great Point Media. Um, and they uh, said, well, great, if you can do this for, you know, 45 grand then what can you do with a bit more so um so we came in for a meeting with them and this is actually harks back to what i was saying about having more than one playing card in your pack so we went in with a film that we're still trying to make with fingers crossed uh we will be doing soon called drag heist so we pitched this and then laura was like mm, yeah we're sort of hoping for something that's a bit more genre led um maybe a horror something like that and we'd only just started writing the aisle i mean we were kind of halfway through it um and the idea had come from a guy who uh, louis who uh, was our spark one of our um, electricians on two down and he had come to us and said, guys, uh, so my family own an island in Scotland and and uh, we've always really wanted to film something there. But um, we have never kind of, we've, like the BBC have said it's too hard. There's no roads. You have to access it by boat. Um, so we've never managed it. But would you guys come up and have a look? Because I would really, really love to film something there. Matt and I were thinking, oh, God, we're, so we're going to go like eight hours, you know, like past Glasgow up further west um and you know and we're going to find this sort of rock in the middle of a pond i mean it, it is not that at all i mean this island is extraordinary it's so so beautiful and as soon as we got there it's called eileen shona and you can actually go and stay up there and there are these beautiful beautiful cottages um and yes there are no roads and there are no telephone poles or, you know, there's there's nothing. There's nothing that destroys its beauty. It is absolutely kind of pure and 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 of of a period. So the cottages, you know, are in the they're they're set, you know, they're built in the Victorian period. So that immediately spoke to us and said, Well, we, you know, we have to write something about the island that it, that, that is at least, you know, our our jump off point. Um, and that is a character within within it and so that's how we came up with with the script the isle um and it's supposed that this this island um is haunted by a woman who was wronged um uh, persephone so it's based on the greek myth of sirens and there are these there's a few inhabitants that are left on the island but that's it everyone else has abandoned it and what's fascinating about the real island is that um it was in fact once quite populated and then the food uh, famine the potato famine happened and and everyone um left um and so you see remnants of this kind of left and deserted island still today you know these sort of half fallen down cottages and stuff when we were over there in the location recce um louis actually told us that there had been um someone a body of a woman found in the school the old schoolhouse uh, and no one knew how she died. Yeah. So we were like, this is great. This is gold dust. So, yeah, so we um, we sort of based it all around um, what had actually happened on the island. And then we pitched that to Great Point. And uh, Laura was like, yeah, that sounds great. And then we sort of went about putting the budget together. 
and then and then they gave us a majority of the money we had to find a little bit um to kind of top up um uh, i think the overall budget was about two hundred and fifty thousand. okay tori by this point you you're acting you're writing you're doing budgets financing bits of yeah. directing with matt predominantly but you know you're involved so this is a massive vehicle, really, Fizz and Ginger, in terms of dominating your life. Hmm. Once you've finished filming and you, you know, you've wrapped and then you're in post-production, how does it feel? Does it feel absolutely amazing that this is yours and no one can take it away? You and Matt have pretty much complete control. Mm, yeah I mean you, yeah <laughs> sort of um in the last one that we've done yes absolutely that's completely true I mean I have to say that I, I don't direct at all that's entirely Matt I think as a director you have to be able to keep the entire picture of the whole film frame by frame in your mind's eye at any one point um because you're constantly going you know back and forth um that you you have to be able to con- retain that all that all, all that information which i just can't i mean i just can't do i sort of <laughs> i constantly have to go back and be like while filming and go where, where are we okay what was going on <laughs> but um it is amazing once you the film's in the can and you've wrapped and you start on the post-production which in itself is just an incredible creative process which you know as an actor you never are party to what I found so fascinating and so helpful as an actor is learning about editing and knowing what happens in the edit, um, how the editor works, how you can help an editor with your performance. I think actors get a little trapped in their selves um, because that's the nature of the job. And, you know, you have to be. Um, but, you know, yes, you are a vital, vital part of it. Um, But you are only one part and there are many that create a film. And I think it's a very humbling experience as an actor to create your own work because you really do start to realise, you know, how many people make make that incredible piece um, of art. Um, And, um, you know, there's a saying that every film is a miracle and it's absolutely true because it is so hard um, from start to finish. But yeah, editing is just a fan- fascinating process that um, I love kind of to, to watch. Uh, we have an incredible editor, Will Honeyball, that we work with, uh, we've worked with on all of our films. Um, and I think Matt would basically not make a film if he, if he wasn't available to edit it. Um, and then you come on to the grade and, you know, and the colouring of it. Uh, which is another thing that I just you know, knew nothing about. Um, the sound design, you know, so there's all of these elements. And, and what's really lovely is that you're very much working as a company, as a team. So as an actor from, a, you know, a theatre background, you would relate to the feeling of being in a company. For a screen actor, it can be quite lonely. You know, you get your call time, you get picked up, you get brought to set. Yes, you get to kind of chat to people on set. But actually, and especially filming at the moment, you know, you're kind of isolated and you're kind of, you know, penned in and sort of you know, removed when um, when you're not needed. So actually, it's nice to kind of be part of that team that's building it. It sounds lovely. And I think it must be reassuring that, like you said, 
you started the company because you were both creating work for yourselves and it must feel nice that you've always got that you both have been so busy during lockdown making a movie yes you've made infinitum subject unknown which is currently in the edit process Mm. uh did you think well you know we're gonna be a bit quiet let's crack on and give ourselves some more work Yes, basically, that's it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that's exactly what we did. So um, we, having just banged on about being part of a team, um, we then, <laughs> at the beginning of lockdown, we thought, right, okay, there's two of us, we're stuck in a house together. Uh, if we're not going to kill each other, we're going to have to do something. Um, so <laughs> about eight years ago, we started writing a... Um, uh, film called Infinitum. It's a sci-fi thriller, and um, we wrote the screenplay. And then our, our manager in America uh, said, "Guys, I think this could be really good as a TV series." So um, we then spent some more time uh, adapting it into a TV series, developing the concept of the first series, the second series, the third series, as you have to do now, um, and writing the pilot. And then, um, and then kind of we got to that point and sort of everything was kind of fitting into place. And our um, manager suggested, he said, look, I've just sold something to Netflix that um, we made into a graphic novel. We were talking to a friend of ours, Ben Lee, who is an actor um, and an incredible artist. And being an actor, his work obviously stopped because of lockdown as well. So um, I sort of said, look, Ben, um, have you ever thought he's... um, a big fan of graphic novels. And I said, have you ever thought about um, drawing one? I don't really know what the process is, but um, <laughs> our manager suggested that we convert our pilot into a graphic novel. And so we sent him the script and he was like, yes, I can see it. This is amazing. And so at the beginning of lockdown, he started drawing the graphic novel. Meanwhile, we were like, is there something that we can make that's kind of part of this world? You know, obviously with like, DC comics and you know all of and the Avengers all of that world they create and there's different offshoots and stuff like that and so we were like maybe on a much smaller scale maybe there's something we can do um that will kind of marry alongside the TV series or perhaps the the other subsequent um feature films um and so that's when we came up with the idea of taking one of our our um subjects it's it's about um human testing um and um we isolate her um because she is kind of stuck between two parallel worlds um and so it is an empty world that she is is in living in and it's her journey in how and discovering what her fate is and how she's got there um that is basically the through line of the story we're very lucky in that we have a flat that's down below us that is empty um it's owned by the owner that owns the whole house um but it hasn't been decorated since like the 70s so there's pretty spectacular wallpaper and um it's it's like a little locked sort of time bubble down there um and so we spent the first couple of weeks um filming the first half of the film in there um and then she escapes and um, she finds herself in this empty London. Um, so we were, I think that was just as Boris said, um, if you can do your job safely, uh, then, you know, you can go outside. So that at which point we were like, right, 
let's get up really, really early and drive around London streets that are empty and boarded up. Um, and then let's go down to um, where my parents live in Oxfordshire. And my mom works for uh, an American um, university that has a college over here, um, Roxton College. And um, they obviously had been sent back to America in March and the college was completely empty. And so I wrote to the dean and I said, is there any chance that, you know, if if we're very sensible, there's only two of us, if we, you know, very um, clear about where we go, is there any chance that we can film a couple of scenes in like, three or four of the the rooms in the in the in the college um and and he agreed and so we that's what we did and so um we sort of were buzzed in and then we disinfected and sanitized and then we sort of wrote down exactly where we'd been um and it was only Matt and I and we were filming on an iPhone on a gimbal so there was like no there was hardly any kit we had two lights that we barely used in fact most of it is uh, shot with natural lights so we kind of managed to pull it off <laughs> that's amazing Tori you filmed a movie on an iPhone yeah we did <laughs> um, which, which is not unheard of at all um Steven Soderbergh uh films a lot of his stuff on and he shoots himself um on iPhones um there is an amazing app called Filmic Pro which um sort of enables you to have much more control over your camera now I'm not technical at all um but it gives you you can alter your white balance and all that kind of stuff and so so that you get a much more um log uh shooting um which you can then grade afterwards (laughs) obviously it's not the same as you know filming something like on an Aria Alexa or something but um, when you're in lockdown on your own and you've got your iPhone um, <laughs> and the gimbal was in- amazing as well, which is this sort of little thing that stabilizes movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just gives it a much more cinematic feel, uh, much less kind of jarry. Um, uh, so, yeah, so we Matt f- shot it all, obviously, and directed it. Uh, and I am. Um, almost the only one in it for a majority of it um but then ian and conleth pop up as our scientists as um sort of cameos to uh alleviate some of the monotony of my face that is just brilliant and what better time to ask them to get involved than during lockdown when no one can go anywhere or do anything no exactly they were sitting at home and they could shoot it at home and it's um yeah yeah it worked it worked really well this is amazing and can we expect this to be out this year? Uh, hopefully. Fingers crossed. And we are aiming to... Uh, so it's we've done picture lock and it's now having VFX and then grading and the music is being composed. Um, but we're hoping to get it all completed um, by mid-September. And we've got some exciting distributors that are waiting to, to see it. So, Wow. Your brain think. must be on the go all the time with all of these different elements and ideas and it sounds to me like the pair of you are always thinking hmm how can we turn that into something how can we expand on that how can that be you know elaborated and and I guess that's what you've got to do in this day and age now to carve your own path yeah exactly I think that's spot on um we've sort of learned to be resilient um and taught ourselves so much um i think you know it's so important to kind of remember that you know the learning the learning never stops 
I've taught myself how to be a line producer um, and budget and yeah, all sorts of things um, that, you know, financing and how you build up the finance for a film. And, and we actually, last year, we wrote it all down into a book, which is meant to be being published in March, but I'm not sure because of uh, what's happened with lockdown. The publishers have been closed for quite a while. So I'm not sure whether that's um, uh, going to happen then or a little bit later in the year. But um, And we've now got another film to add to it. So um, And we've learned so much from going out and, and doing all of that on our own. Um, it sounds you know, like it. How vital it is actually to have a crew it can be a small crew um but you know there were certain things that that were very difficult lighting for one we found you know incredibly challenging neither of us are trained in lighting and it's it's so specific um and uh continuity is another one oh i was constantly going am i wearing this is my jacket on off where's my bag in the last scene you know all of that stuff do you know, I'm not very good with, like you, lighting, things like that, I don't notice. But continuity, when I'm watching a telepromme or a film, I notice eye makeup, lipstick, yeah. the wrong colour, the different colour, the hair, the partner's the other side. All these little things really bother me. But I can imagine that must be so difficult to get right on a shoot as well. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you will have a field day watching. <laughs> <laughs> Tori... How do you relax? Because it sounds like you're you're fairly nonstop. Um, <laughs> um, how do we relax? I mean, uh, we we have a dog, and um, you know we go on dog walks, and um, I drink tequila and tonic, at, you know, <laughs> midday on a Saturday. Um, actually, to be honest, my yoga's kind of really helps as well, even though you know, I teach it. Um, Having that to sort of uh, as a as a release, that something not to do with um, the creative world is is nice. And who would you say has been the biggest influence on you? Mm. We've had two mentors who have been incredible: uh, Margaret Matheson and Gareth Jones, who have taught us a lot about the industry. Um, so those guys um for sure and i have to say <laughs> i've always said this i don't really know whether she's sort of maybe an influence or just sort of an idol audrey hepburn i've always loved um i mean perhaps maybe not necessarily always for her sort of um her performances but um just her sort of grace and poise and um uh yeah I've always been a, a big fan in fact our, our dog our dog is called Audrey <laughs> and and what breed is your dog uh she is a border terrier lovely <laughs> um Tori you've been amazing we definitely could have chatted for even longer because there are so many things that you've done and and achievements galore thank you so much for talking to me today because you're a real inspiration and I know that you will be to loads of people and especially undergraduates people at drama school those wanting to break into the industry you know you're not sugarcoating it (laughs) it's been uh, a real insight into how your industry works and I've learned loads so thank you so much oh no not at all thank you so much for having me and I really, really hope that the curse of the Buxom Strumpet gets made because I, I feel like it needs to. I know. Fingers crossed, hey? 
let's put that out there into the world. Tori, thank you for your time. And I can't wait to watch the film when it's out later this year. Yay, thank you so much. That was actress, writer, producer and co-owner of Fizz and Ginger film production company, Tori Butler-Hart. Don't forget to subscribe to future episodes from your preferred podcast provider and follow me on Twitter at Shireen Jordan and on Instagram at Shireen R. Jordan.